Welcome to On the Dresser. Sex, Sex. queer, politics. What's on your dresser? Our conversations are led by sex workers, queer people, and sex educators. We call what we do edutitillation. We use explicit language and discuss topics that may not be a good fit for all listeners. But if you like honest, frank talk about gender, sexuality, and bodies, if you know it's all political, but you're not always sure what to do about it, well, we're here for you. All right. We're going to have... We're going to have a party in the background because we're at Prospect Park. Um, hi, listeners of both The Oldest Profession yeah. and On The Dresser. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, patron supporters, for chiming in. <laughs> okay, so I'm Vanessa Carlisle. I'm Caitlin Bailey. We've never met before, and we just met today. Yeah, we were connected by uh, Kayan, who's always a great a great connector of people and an incredible person herself. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thrilled to meet you, and what... What a perfect, like, picture-perfect park meeting. We're surrounded by fireflies, you guys. All my L.A. people, we are surrounded by fireflies. <laughs> and fat raccoons. Um, and really cute dogs. Yeah. Yeah. And we're coming out of uh, a little over two hours of doing sex worker future visioning yeah. Writing about utopias. It was an event organized by Tina Horn and Mistress Blunt called Future Future Lab Hortopia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, it was awesome. It was incredible. And I think it, it, it was just a beautiful reminder of like the power of collective energy and community and the power of coming together in a physical space and putting all of our creative energy towards a shared goal. Mm-hmm. And I think that... Um, a lot of us, I know that this work can be very isolating, and I also know that activism uh, can pull very deeply on the like lone soldier narrative, and it can be very exhausting. And to come together with a bunch of other uh, smart people um, felt, I don't know, really liberating and really reassuring. Um, I feel, I feel lots of things that are all good. <laughs> Yeah, it's cool to be in a group of people where you don't have to fight for a yes and. Yeah! <laughs> right. right. You're not going to be willfully misunderstood in a strange, like, I call them, like, funhouse echo chambers, where it's like you say a thing, and then it gets, echo- it gets echoed back to you wrong, and you're like, I don't know, what is it, your mountain's wrong. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, it was really beautiful. There, we had some cool, we had some really cool prompts, like, you know, what is your sex worker utopia? Mm-hmm. Uh, we wrote about that. We wrote about... Um, what else did we write about? That's the one I remember. We had one before that. Yeah, it was... Um, and then what... Oh, there was just free writing. Oh, yeah. Just, we, to, <laughs> just to prime that, it was just free writing, which right. was very confused. I asked for clarification like six times. I was like, <laughs> I need an assignment. Uh, <laughs> Give me parameters. I'm a good student and a good girl. Uh, <laughs> let's see. Um, that And then we, we came up with other prompts. One of, um, like, what, what does freedom feel like? Mm-hmm. Uh, describe your ideal client or describe your ideal session both your as a provider and also as a consumer which I thought was really cool and interesting to uh you know put yourselves on both sides of the equation um a lot of just deep thinking um I think it what's so great about creative writing or any form of like writing is that you're 
I don't know, you're freed from the constraints of a lot of other kinds of activism and organizing work, can, which can get sort of like myopically preoccupied with the possible right. or the what rational. What can we do? What can we right. do? What, yeah. what, can, what can we achieve based on imperfect information about an unknowable future? And it's like, what if there were no rules? And what if, what if there are no constraints? Like, what would be the ideal future, not based on an analysis of what's possible, but, what, what, but based on a dream of right. what's possible? Right, right. Yeah. I, I love that because I've been thinking a lot about how to win without money. Yeah. <laughs> because I just, I feel like I've been under a lot of pressure to mm-hmm. think about money, getting money, getting more money, fundraising for stuff, right. personal shit, getting money, but right. then also fundraising for stuff. And, you know, I'm, I'm really trying to figure out ways to increase capacity mm-hmm. without money. Yeah, and I think that I think we we can intellectually know that money isn't the only metric that matters, and also be uh, preoccupied and obsessed with with it because yeah. it, because we live in a culture that is preoccupied and obsessed with this thing, and also I think as sex workers we are acutely aware that money can kind of corrupt everything it touches, um, and that we need to be looking past that or through that or beyond that um, to define the thing. You know, like, and I think that that connection is the currency that we play with, and mm-hmm. it is ultimately one that is, is more powerful uh, yeah, than like money. That. Yeah, I like that a lot. Um, and it's definitely what this event, yes, just did. Community connection, uh, being able to validate each other's experiences, learning from each other, coming from a shared place, trying to create a shared vision, um, and it, I think the. Community has always been very important, but in the wake of SESTA-FOSTA, because um, our, our, a lot of us that do this this isolating work, our community has existed on the internet. I mean, like as podcast listeners, you know, like it's a it's an e-universe, but to physically gather in a park, be able to make eye contact and to hug and touch and see, it's, it's um feels like literal magic mm-hmm. and just a really undervalued powerful thing yeah yeah and part of the power has to be that when people show it physically you see their tenderness their nervousness right like yeah we have we cannot actually hide everything when we are physically present which isn't to say that I haven't hid amazing things yeah. while naked. Yeah, right, yeah. I mean, we've like, all been in session. Like, let's not. I've, you know, I've hid scarlet fever, I'd like to say, from a client. Not but. I don't know how I feel. I don't know how I feel about. But, like, what we, what we just did was sit at a table and not try to perform too hard for each other, yeah. but to show up for each other yes. in, an, in an authentic way. And that's something that I find in sex work community is sex workers are like, I'm not working right now. Yeah. Which means you're seeing me, you're hearing me. Right. <laughs> this is me authentically yes. engaging because that's the difference between work and not work. Yes. Not work is... I don't lie to you right. just to get through the next 10 minutes. <laughs> what, one of the things that I found so interesting is that I, so I, I started doing um, hourly escort work when I was in high school, and then I went to college, which is like where I brushed up against the hookup culture. And I found it so interesting because I, I also had this dichotomy of like, no, 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 if you want me to perform for you, that's an hourly rate, not a Bud Light. You know what I mean? Yep. Like, like a, a single drink does not 
uh, this like yes girl make. That's a different character, and uh, you haven't earned her. And to, it, I didn't realize what a violation of the social script that was because I do think that like regular civilian women are sort of forced into this escort character. That's what the the, the smile, sweetheart, and this straight women. <laughs> I call them sit, like women, non non professional sex workers. The, the gendered expectation of just, I, mean, I call them civilian women, but I also call like non-comic civilians and my dad was a soldier. So like whatever, like whatever. You're all over the place yeah, yeah. with that. Okay. But so it's like, word, what do words mean? But um, women that have never engaged in sex work, but identify as like cis femme and the social script and expectation that is available to women with the men that are hitting on them. Right. Like, so at a bar, like when I just went to a bar Mm -hmm. as like, as myself out in, not in character, not look, not looking to, you know, score a trick or whatever, the expectation of men that were speaking to me seemed to be that I be in my escort character yes. and were deeply troubled by my authentic self as a as a contrarian as a uh, free thinker as a um, you know provocateur so I, I just found it interesting that like the social script seemed towards agreeableness right uh, uncompensated the uncompensated emotional labor that we're all like conned into I and totally experienced yeah. this I totally experienced this and one of the things that happened was I realized well I'm, I'm not stripping right now so I don't I don't have to do this yeah I'm not you know like I'm not getting paid to do this I don't have to do this yeah. and then what what came upon the heels of that for me was many years of other kinds of sex work 20 you mm-hmm. know 20 years now of various forms of sex work and I'm pansexual and so I can choose against the heterosexual script Mm -hmm. at any moment at any time and enter other kinds of I mean there's scripts for queer interactions too and they're different and there's scripts for lesbian interactions and there's scripts for you know like there's all there's scripts for all of them but there's some I find more oppressive than others and the heterosexual one is the one I find the most oppressive I I 100% agree with that and I think it becomes with you know thousands and thousands of years of violent oppression I don't think it's a a myth or something that we're making it's It's not not just in your head it's not personal to me (laughs) (laughs) you don't burn 200,000 mouthy women at the stake with Without having some like residual generational fear around, <laughs> right. around having an opinion yeah. and a vagina at the same time, <laughs> that is a dangerous combo, ladies and gentlemen. Like, you heard it here. Out with, watch out with that. Oh god, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it it is it is interesting, and I do I do think that sex work um, and the masks that that industry unveils, right? Um, see ya. Bye bye. We made friends. Um, the masks that re- a, a careful analysis of this industry reveals, it presents like an existential threat, I think, to like, you know, violent capitalist, toxic masculine culture. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's like, <laughs> we present this enormous threat by sitting at two picnic tables, eating popcorn and writing in our journals together. That yes. is our, that is us presenting our threat. But, but it is. Storytelling is actually the answer. I don't, I don't think, I mean, like, 
I, I don't think that throwing bricks through the right windows is ever going to get us anywhere. I don't think that you meet violence with violence. I don't believe in violent peacekeeping missions. But I think that like all of the violence has been about controlling the story up until this moment. And the ability to sit around a table and make eye contact with other people that validate your experience is what gives all of us at that table the strength to go back out in the world and insist on our own reality mm -hmm. and insist on the legitimacy of our own experience and to insist on being the narrators of our own story yeah which is which is a threat to the the social order yeah i i agree with almost all of what you just said except that i find space in in these beliefs also for a belief in self-defense Yes. And in many ways, like, a belief in armed revolution. Because yeah. I don't actually believe that the state should have the monopoly on violence. And For they, sure. And so, and because they do, you know, in some ways, like, people being willing to put their own bodies on the line is part of what I'm doing and part of how I'm training, is thinking through what does it look like for me to fight back individually, personally, when my boundaries are violated? And how can I imagine mm -hmm. that as a movement tactic that isn't just about replicating forms of oppression, replicating violent control. It's not about violent control. Right. right? It's about the ability to enforce boundaries. Yes. And I think I think that point is fascinating because something boundaries that you can't enforce don't exist. That's that's something that I've learned dating addicts, it's something that I've learned just being a woman in the world. And what I found so interesting is within the context of sex work, there were all kinds of mechanisms available to me in 2004, 2005, through message boards and shared community for me to enforce stated boundaries. There was professional courtesy, there was like uh, FAQ sections that, that revealed to me that like every other woman working in this market is like using a condom and I felt very supported and backed up in any any boundaries that I articulated. I felt comfortable enforcing those. There, there were yeah. mechanisms available. Whereas I I did not have access to that in like the just dating hookup culture that I entered into at all. And I, um, you know, I'm the daughter of a soldier. And so I was raised with this like fight or flight, you better be a fighter kind of thing. And then I got into uh, my first abusive relationship and discovered uh, the horrifying reality that I'm a freezer. And understanding the depth of that and the overwhelming, like it, like to full to understand in a visceral way that that wasn't a choice that was made that yeah. my body just understood in that violent moment that the safest thing to do was to go limp and helpless and so i I've, I've been taking muay thai classes for the last year and like running through uh, the mental exercise of like the next person that touches my butt on a subway is getting throat punch but i don't actually know what that looks like because i've 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 only, the only context that I have for fighting is in class. And I've, I've even frozen a few times. It, like, covered head to toe in pads. And so it's... I'm so glad that you brought that up, and I'm fascinated by um, whether or not we're trying to or starting a journey of overcoming my freezing instinct, which might be the most rational decision, right? That my body knows things that I don't. And I do believe that if I'd fought back my abuser at that moment, that I would have ended up in the hospital or dead. Like, I do understand that. And also, I would like to work towards a future where um, I can make choices within that space of panic. And yeah. I think that that training is the only way to achieve that. I think so, too. Um, I've, I've been at it for almost three years, and I also had mm -hmm. an abusive relationship that taught me a lot about freezing. Yeah. And taught me a lot about when I do fight back and when I don't. Yeah. Um, 
And one of the most helpful things that my uh, teacher, my sensei, has told mm-hmm. me is that you never overcome a freeze response. You never overcome yeah. a flight response. What you do is you open up a little bit more time before it happens. Yeah. And you do get a little bit more decision-making power before mm-hmm. it happens. And that's how I think of self-defense. Like, at some level, if your life is threatened, you're probably not choosing what's happening. Right. Because you are now in a neurological moment yep. that is not yours to, to consciously right. choose. But a lot happens before that moment. Yes. And so when you are personally defending yourself mm-hmm. and your awareness is different, your breathing is different, your stance is different, mm-hmm. your consciousness, all those things can change with training. And movements, I think, can work this way too. Yeah. Where you can train yourself a little more space, a little yep. more time to make some more decisions before you're all incarcerated, you know, <laughs> or before you're all beat down by the and system. I, I think that that is 100% true in a in a physical threat situation and it is just as true in an emotional threat situation and I think that's something that I began to learn as a sex worker that I then expanded as a performer and then am like even more informing through this Muay Thai training is the body mind self connection Um, and I believe in the 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 revelatory power of like if we if we create a culture of people that were just more connected to their bodies then we could cut a bunch of bullshit yeah 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 i like telling people like i'm you know read sonia renee taylor's the body is not an apology Mm. and when you hit the point where you're like wait a minute she's talking about everything just Mm. remember that yes that is true yes that is true (laughs) yeah she's talking about everything because your ability to be in your body with love is actually everything it's It's, it's the lens through which you see everything i have not read that book and i want to um have you read a language older than words no it is another about everything book um, and it is, uh, well, it's, it's more than a memoir. Great. I'll throw it out. Yeah. Summer reading list yeah. for podcast listeners. Report back. There will be a quiz. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, what? I'm yeah, so glad right. I met you. I'm so glad I met you too. I'm so sad. Like I'm going, I'm, I'm leaving for San Francisco tomorrow. You're only here for a second, but like, I'm so glad that we got to physically connect. Yeah. 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 Let's do it again. And thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Back at you. Fist bump. <laughs> it's great.